You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Jessica Blank. She is a multi-hyphenate artist, actor, writer, director, teacher, coach. She has such an incredible grasp of her process and a passion for articulating her approach to storytelling, so I'm very excited to share this conversation with you. She does a lot of her work in collaboration with her husband, Eric Jensen, and they have a show they wrote and Jessica directed running right now at Cherry Lane Theater in New York. It's called Coal Country. It's a documentary theater piece with music about the aftermath of the West Virginia mine explosion of 2010. You can buy tickets at coalcountrymusical.com. It's running through April 17th. And you can look into more of Jessica's work and offerings at jessicacblank.com. I hope you enjoy the 183rd episode of The Compass. What do you do to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? What do I do to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? I... Well, define the dark side. <laughs> well, I was going to say wrapped up in that is what does the dark side look like most often for you? It can be different for everyone. What comes to mind? I mean, it's interesting. I'm a pretty uh, extroverted, positive action oriented person. And so in a certain way, the creative work I do as an artist keeps me from going to the dark side as an artist, right? Um, like my motto is keep making, right? So when things get hard, right, as they inevitably do, when I feel stuck or when there's a, you know, professional disappointment that happens or rejection or we hit an obstacle in making one of our projects happen or whatever, my cure for that is to just keep doing stuff, mm. Right. It's to, I mean, one of the things that I tell all my clients and students and that I really practice is that making creative work, particularly creative work that's based in collaboration like theater and film and television, is a huge amount of it is creative problem solving, right? Like the making the work itself is a process of creative problem solving. And so if you don't embrace that, then you're going to be miserable a lot of the time, <laughs> right? Because we're doing these incredibly complicated, complex, 
pro, you know, projects. We're doing incredibly complex things in complex systems with lots and lots of people to make the work happen, right? It's more complicated than writing something by yourself or painting something by yourself, right? When we're trying to actually make a collaborative work like a play or a television show, right? So the whole thing is problems, right? So if you look at problems as a bad thing, you're going to be miserable and stressed out and get stuck. If you look at every problem as part of the creative process and that making the work is the art of creative problem solving, then that's a frame shift, right? So when I get stuck and things get difficult for me, I look at how to solve the problem, right? And I embrace that as part of the creative process. Um, If I get hit with a rejection on a project that feels like a huge blow, I get up the next day and I start working on another one, right? So um, I, I think a lot of places that are pitfalls for a lot of artists I know, for a lot of clients that I have and students that I have, I have a sort of way of framing creative practice that keeps me out of, you know, the whatever the quote unquote dark side is for a lot of folks. Um, my own personal dark side creatively, right? Or like, or like the, the shadow side of that mm-hmm. is that I can get very overextended. And I can stay in action mode, even if it's positive action mode, past the point of burnout and exhaustion sometimes. And that's something that I have to be careful about because there is a point where no matter how positive the action is you're taking and no, no matter how creative it is, there's the law of diminishing returns, right? right? Like at some point, I need to rest. At some point... I need to allow at some point I need to create the space for solutions to just show up instead of making them happen myself. And that's definitely an ongoing lesson for me and an ongoing (laughs) for me in my own creative process. What has, what has your journey been like finding that, um, that outlook that you're talking about, about looking about looking at everything as a problem to be solved in a positive light has, when did you kind of discover that that was what you were doing or is that was how you needed to frame it for yourself? I mean, I think the, I think in a certain way, it's how I've always worked. Um, I mean, I can talk a little bit about my own development and journey as as an artist and as a multidisciplinary hyphenate and sort of how that evolved, um, because I think it might help contextualize some of that. So I started as an actor. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a theater geek in high school and became pretty serious about it um, as I was growing up. And I knew that that was what I wanted to do. I am still an actor. I love acting. Um, But, you know, and, and acting is the gateway drug, (laughs) theater and film and television for many people who work in any of those mediums, right? Even if we wind up becoming writers or directors or producers, right? Like the thing you can access as a kid is acting, right? Um, And so that's where I started. Um, But I've always been an interdisciplinary person and an interdisciplinary creator. I've always written. um, I've always made things. 
and um, worked as a cre- creative generative artist in addition to an interpretive mm. artist. Um, so in college, I did an interdisciplinary major where I was studying acting and I was studying creative writing. And then I was doing like critical theory on what it means to do both things. And I've also always been an activist and very politically oriented as well. Um, so I came to New York to train as an actor. I studied with Bill Esper um, after I finished college. And partway through my first year in acting school, I met uh, my husband, now my husband, Eric Jensen, who also was an actor and also naturally a hyphenate. Like he had a band that had a recording deal with Sony and he was making money working as an illustrator, but also as an actor. And right. Um, And this was like back in the day when being a hyphenate was weird and people would approach (laughs) us and be like, but what really are you? And we'd be like, well, we're kind of all of it. Um, And we had an idea a month. We got an idea a month after we met. I brought him to a conference on the death penalty at Columbia University because that's what I was doing. And he (laughs) likes to say that he said yes because he was still at the stage of our relationship where he would say yes to anything I asked him to. Just a little romantic date. Yes. And we were um, in a workshop at that conference about a group of cases called the Death Row 10, which were guys who all had confessions tortured out of them by a particular police commander in Chicago who had been found to have done that and fired. But these guys were still sitting in prison, some of them with no other evidence against them besides these quote unquote confessions. And um, the organizers had set up a phone call from one of the guys in prison and hooked the phone up to a speaker so that for a few minutes he was actually speaking to us in the room. Um, And our emotional experience hearing that phone call was so above and beyond the previous hour of like lecture and information that we had heard about the cases. And it had, by the end of the call, everybody in the room was crying. And Eric sort of looked around and he said, he was also crying, but he was like, but this is also kind of BS because we're at a death penalty conference. Everybody who's here is already an activist. These aren't the people that need to be having this experience. And we started literally writing notes back and forth to each other in the back of the classroom about how do you get around that problem of preaching to the converted, basically. Um, And we were both really interested in documentary theater. I was huge Anna DeVere Smith fan. Um, Moises Kaufman at that point was still working on creating the Laramie Project. It hadn't come out yet, but Eric had worked with him and crossed paths and knew about it. Um, And we got the idea in that conversation to travel around the country, interview death row exonerees and make a documentary play from the interviews, which became our play, The Exonerated, which ran for a couple of years off Broadway and toured nationally and had an impact Mm -hmm. on abolishing the death penalty in Illinois and did a whole lot of things, right? Neither of us knew how to do that when we started doing it, right? I did we hadn't written a play before. I didn't know how to find death row exonerees. We had less than a thousand dollars in our bank account. We were struggling artists who lived in a rent stabilized 400 square foot apartment in the East village. Like we didn't have a playwriting agent. Certainly we didn't have any of that infrastructure at all. And I, you know, together we figured out how to do what we needed to do in order to create that play. And, we did it step by step. We messed up along the way. We tried lots of things that didn't work. We tried lots of things that did work. And when we found something that worked, we leaned into the yes, which is a phrase that Eric uses a lot, right? Of like, oh, okay, that's this thing works, right? We're going to go there, right? We didn't know how to create a script, for example, when we got back from 
interviewing the people who we had interviewed. Mm -hmm. We had those interviews transcribed and we did not even know where to begin turning those transcripts into a play. But we were both actors and we had a community of actors and we knew how to work with text in a room as actors. And we had somebody uh, who had offered us space. And so we just called up our friends and we said, do you want to come read these transcripts out loud? And we found that we could edit by ear and that we could hear when we heard actors read the transcripts out loud, what was not theatrical immediately, right? right? We right. could hear like certain layers of cuts, like, and get, so then we went, we would go, we would edit by ear, cross stuff out on the page in the room with actors, go home, enter those into the computer, come back with a condensed version the next day, whatever of our actor community was around to read those the next day, we would do that. And we repeated it over and over and over again until finally monologues started to emerge. And then we did the same thing, juxtaposing those monologues with each other, just listening to hear what worked. And we took the same approach to raising the money that we needed to raise in order to travel around the country and do the interviews because we couldn't afford it out of pocket. I mean, we slept in the car and it was all on a shoestring, but we still needed to raise some money. We took the same approach, finding a director for the initial readings of the piece. We, you know, we like you find where you can do it and you do that and you see what happens and you look for what works and you lean harder into that. So in a certain way, it would be disingenuous for me to say that I learned how to look at creative problem solving as part of making art because it's just what I did the first mm -hmm. time I started trying to make something. Yeah. Everything you encountered. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's just, you know, we, that play had a very long life and was made into a film and we wrote a book about it. And, you know, it was basically, we got the idea in 2000 and the book and the movie came out in 2005. So it was like a five year creative journey the oh life my, of that like play. You just must have learned so much. You ended up working in all those different mediums. Yeah, it became the model for everything we do. So when we came out of that, we had a methodology, basically. Yeah. And so then, you know, definitely over the years, I've spent time refining and honing that methodology, looking at how, you know, we've directed our first feature, right? So it was like, a, you know, in, in 2000. 16, it was a process to learn how to apply the same principles to directing a film, running a set, right? It, the principles apply in different ways in when I'm running a rehearsal room. Um, so there are different applications and different ways that we've refined things over the years. And then definitely, I would say maybe six or so years ago, I really went through a conscious process of learning how to articulate all of these principles when I really started um, I mean, I've been coaching sort of casually for a long time, but when I started coaching in a more formal way and I teach at Juilliard in the mm -hmm. uh, graduate drama division, um, and I started really learning how to articulate how it is that we do this to other people and pass it on to other artists who are, you know, in the next generation. I love that. Um, I want, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but let's talk about Coal Country first, just to make Great. sure that we get it in there. I went to see it last night and it was um, so wonderful. Awesome. Yeah, I'm I really so wanted I really wanted to be able to see it before we talked. I had not been to see anything at Cherry Lane in so long. <laughs> it yeah. was like a pleasure to get to go to that part of the city. 
Do you just want to tell just like a little bit about what it's about for people? Yeah, absolutely. So Coal Country is the documentary play, our most recent documentary play. Actually, in a funny way, it's not our most recent documentary right. play anymore because <laughs> we wrote it in, it opened in the public, at the public theater in uh, March, early March of 2020. That, just, that just must have been insane. It was pretty wild. Um, we had been open for, we had a couple of weeks of previews, but we had been open for, I believe, a week when everything got shut down. And so it's it's no longer accurate to say it's our most recent documentary right. play because after the shutdown, we actually did a rapid response documentary play for also for the public, which was streamed online called The Line based on interviews that we conducted with uh, New York City medical first responders uh, in May of 2020. Is that, um, st- is that available to watch anywhere now? Sadly, it at the not, time. Um, because the contract, the streaming contract that had to be done with the actors, limit it's a limited right. run, right? right? So um, it's, it's no longer available to be streamed. It should be published fairly soon. Um, right. We've just done a licensing agreement for the script. So the script should be accessible. Um, and hopefully there, you know, we wrote it so that it is, producible as live theater also. So hopefully there will be productions of it um, in non-streaming venues as well. Um, So, but back to Coal Country, because we have wonderfully just reopened at the Cherry Lane. The public theater production um, that had been shut down from COVID has been reopened by the public together with Audible um, at at the Cherry Lane. And it is a documentary play that Eric and I wrote based on interviews that we conducted in 2015 with surviving family members and survivors of the fam- of miners, coal miners who were killed in the 2010 Upper Big Branch Mine disaster in West Virginia, which was a terrible mine disaster, mine explosion um, that many, many, many people believe was completely preventable. And in fact, the CEO of the company was prosecuted by the Obama Justice Department and spent a year in prison for a conspiracy to violate mine safety laws. Um, There were many, many ways in which safety laws were violated and corners were cut um, for many, many years that created a situation where that explosion could happen. Um, And so the story is really about greed um, and corporate greed and what happens when human beings are treated like machinery. Um, and it is also a very deep human story about the people that we met in West Virginia and the families left behind in the wake of these tra- this tragedy who are all extraordinary human beings and have really an awful lot to teach all of us. Um, have any of them gotten to see the show? Yes. So um, the families, most of the family members who are portrayed in the show were actually, uh, they actually came and saw it at the public right before it was shut down, March 7th, 2020. They were there and there are plans to bring them back to the Cherry Lane as well as extend the invitation more widely uh, because 29 minors were killed. Um, The play tells six stories. so to extend the invitation more widely to family members of all 29. I can't imagine what that that editing process was. It yeah, it, obviously I'm sure you wanted to include every story. Yes, and I mean that's you know that's a question that we get asked often about our documentary theater work um about like how do you decide 
which stories, right? We, and, you know, we weren't able to talk to all 29 families, right? One of the principles that we work with in our documentary work is enthusiastic consent, right? Mm-hmm. So we want to talk to the people who really want to tell their stories and who right. feel like they have something that will be healed or helped or liberated or feel good to them about getting their story out there, right? We're not investigative journalists who chase people who don't want to talk to us, right? Um, because the human beings at the center of our documentary work are at the center of our documentary work and everything is about being of service to them. Um, so, but we do usually interview more people than the number of stories that are going to wind up in the play and, uh, selecting the stories that will wind up in the play is one of the most difficult parts of the creative process for us because every single story that we hear is completely compelling and every human being is totally compelling. So it's not about like we can't do it. It's not about deciding like what's the most interesting, right? It's it's much more about like which individual stories when we combine them will tell the larger story that we're trying right. to tell, right? And not double each other, right? And 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 a, a host of other aesthetic questions, but um, it it is really difficult to narrow down. And so, you know, we lean into the process that we discovered with the exonerated. And from the very beginning, we come back from the interviews with transcripts, and we workshop all of them with actors, and just start listening. And there is an ongoing sifting process that happens over an extended period of time. Um, is, that results ultimately in a very sort of condensed, essency distilled work. And then, you know, I think it's worth saying with Coal Country also, Coal Country is a play with music. Right. Um, we knew dealing with the subject matter from the very beginning, you know, Appalachia, you can't, you can't tell a story about Appalachia without music being part of it, right? Music is so woven into the storytelling traditions of Appalachia. It feels... Um, sort of neglectful, actually, to leave that out. And as soon as it occurred to us that the play needed music, we immediately thought of Steve Earle, who we knew actually from The Exonerated. Mm. And we pitched the idea to him and he was immediately on board. So he he is a genius and he wrote the music for the play, which he also performs in the play, all of which is also collected on his album, Ghosts of West Virginia. Yeah, the fact that he's playing it himself is just amazing. Yeah, he's pretty incredible. <laughs> and I I just felt like the relationship he had with the audience was really beautiful. What do the do the actors only have access to the script when you're rehearsing or do they listen to record are they um creating their own characters from scratch or are they listening to the voices? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um you know, actors when they're playing real people always want as much, you know, material right. as they can get their hands on, right? And they want to know all what the do things. What you put out there? Um, not much. So, you know, because it's one thing if you're playing a character who is a public figure, right? And the public has an image of that person already. Like I think about Eric uh, played great Yankee, legendary Yankee Thurman Munson in a miniseries about the 77 Yankees called The Bronx is Burning. And Thurman is like, a he was a beloved person to so many people. So for that process, Eric had to gain weight. He had to watch a video of Thurman Munson. He had to like get his speech and mannerisms down perfectly, right? Because otherwise he wouldn't be meeting the image that and the relationship that so many people in the audience already had to the real person, right? With our documentary work, 
that's not on the table because we interview ordinary people, right, who nobody has a pre-existing image of. And one of the things that we discovered early on in the process with the exonerated that was really incredible is another great example of sort of leaning into the yes and seeing what you learn from what happens when you just make your work, right? So like I said, we didn't have a formal workshop process for the exonerated, right? We didn't have an equity contractor funding or whatever. We like just drew on our community and said, hey, who wants to come play with us today and read these transcripts out loud, right? Um, and so what we got was different people would show up every day, right? Cause people just came as they wanted to, and as they were available. And what that meant was that we had people reading the roles who were not necessarily totally right for them. Right. I mean, we did know that it was important to have to be sort of racially accurate, right, in our casting and gender accurate in our casting because in in the early workshops of The Exonerated because it would have been hard to hear otherwise. But aside from that, you know, I mean, we had 25-year-old actors reading 70-year-old roles and people Mm -hmm. who were not right for it type-wise or whatever. Um, And we observed this incredible phenomenon, which was that the people, the actors, took on the gestures, the vocal mannerisms, the physicality of the real people without having any information except the words that were on the page. And we were able to see from that how much of our psychology is contained in our language, right? How much our language is actually embodied, right? That actually your body will respond a certain way if you are speaking somebody's real words. The language carries so much, right? And so we learned from that that we needed, I mean, because we go through a very heavy editorial process in creating this work, you know, we're distilling 500 pages of transcripts down to a 40-page play, right? But we recognized that we had, it was imperative that we preserve the rhythms of people's language and the, the uniqueness of how people speak as we did that because that's what carries so much with it. So we actually really try to avoid letting our actors for our documentary pieces watch video or sometimes you know they'll go google stuff, right? And sometimes I there are sure there's stuff out there. Yeah. But everything they need is accessible through the language and the relationship the language has with their bodies. And so if we can keep that pure rather than creating a situation in which actors feel like they need to put on a mask or work outside in, um, I find the process as a director to be much, much deeper for all of the actors. What was your experience coming back to the play and rehearsing it with the actors after such a break and after everything everyone's gone through in the pandemic? Really profound. Um, I mean, the first table read, we were all weeping. Uh, You know, we're not the only play that got shut down by COVID, right? Um, So a lot of artists have gone through this kind of creative trauma. It did feel particularly deep, I think, to me and to Eric and to our company because the play is also a documentary piece that is carrying stories of real people 
Um, and we all felt a really enormous sense of responsibility to those people. So to get shut down was sort of doubly painful because not only was there a creative trauma there, but there was an what felt like an abdication of responsibility to real people that, but we couldn't help it. Right. There was like nothing we could do about it in the moment. Um, and I think that was really hard for all of us. And so, you know, in keeping with your question about like, what do I do to stay away from the dark side as an artist, you know, the, the shutdown of coal country was probably the biggest creative trauma I've ever experienced, artistic Mm -hmm. trauma I've ever experienced. Um, it was really, you know, knocked me on my back a little. And what I did was I got on the phone right away. I kept talking to Oscar Eustis. I kept talking to our producer, Yuvika. I called everybody I could, you know, come up with in our creative community and just kept talking about how do we keep this play alive? What does that Mm -hmm. look like? What do we do? Right. And the answer to that, obviously, for a very long time was, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, <laughs> but whatever yeses I got, I kept leaning into and kept following through on. And actually, one of those very early calls was to Kate Naven, who is the lead producer at Audible Theater, because we knew that the play would work as an audio play. And Kate had also previously been our agent. So we, you know, I had her phone number. Um, (laughs) And she said, you know, and this was, I mean, this must have been like April 2020. And she said, you know, that's funny. I I was about to call you. Um, And so we started talking about doing an audio version of the play back then. It took about a year to come together. But the the audible version of Coal Country was recorded still during the pandemic, recorded remotely. um, And which was a whole process. And then when, uh, and the public throughout was trying to reopen, hoping to reopen the play. And when it came time for theaters to really look seriously at being able to reopen, they didn't have the bandwidth to put the play on in the building. Um, but Oscar was completely dedicated to getting the play back up. And he said, let's look at, let's look at how we do this commercially. And because of the relationship with Audible, they were the first person that we called or the first entity that we called and they got right on board. So, um, is it the entire original cast? Almost. There are two, there are two new actors, but it is, it is, and, and, and I had to restage it completely because at the public, we were in the Ansbacher, which is a thrust stage and the Cherry Lane is a very different space. It's a proscenium. It's much smaller. Um, So I re, re blocked the whole thing. Although in a certain way, you kind of can't tell, like it feels like the same show, um, even though it is actually fairly radically restaged. Um, So, you know, we all stayed in touch through those two years of not knowing what was going to happen next. Um, And so I think, you know, when we were able to all actually come together around a table and read the play again and go back to bringing it back to life, um, it was, I mean, it's kind of hard to put into words, actually. It was really extraordinary. We were all incredibly grateful. It was totally moving. It was also hard because for a lot of us, it's our first time back to live theater. Um, the fact that you're reopening almost exactly 
two years, two years to the date when you close. I know I've been having all sorts of flashbacks to, you know, what yeah. I was doing around that time in 2020. And I'm sure for you guys, it was just intensified. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that really struck me and the other, our, you know, our producers who were listening at the first table read was how much deeper the actors' performances had become over the two years because, I mean, because of COVID. I mean, sure, because they had two years to marinate, but really because of what all of us have lived through in relationship to what the play is about. And one of the things Oscar Eustace said to us on opening night hearing the play again, seeing the play again, is he, he's this, this play really is a ritual and it's a ritual about grief. It's a grief Mm. ritual. And so after these last two years, I mean, we all have so much to grieve and there's been so little space for that actually culturally for us to collectively grieve because as we've been able to gather again, it's like people are like, okay, let's get back to life, right? Which, yes, let's. And also, is there any collective space where we can process what we've all been through in varying ways? And I think, you know, that's another thing that has really struck us about the play is that it is, there is an aspect of it that is a vehicle for that, both for us as artists and for the audience. Especially the fact that so many of the stories are, families that it's a generational job yeah and so some of those storylines about losing multiple generations in this one tragedy also draw that line to COVID really clearly yeah absolutely absolutely and you know I think um look coal mining is a dangerous job and no matter how closely you follow safety rules to a certain extent that's always going to be true like fire being a firefighter right it requires enormous courage and physical courage. Um, And also, it does not have to be as dangerous as it was at this mine and at many other mines. And the extent of that disaster, many, many people believe was entirely avoidable and preventable. And the, the level of destruction that happened. Um, And I think the same thing can be said about COVID. Hmm. I mean, was it inevitable that we were going to have a novel virus that was going to come along and disrupt things? Absolutely. Have there been other novel viruses that have been dealt with very differently from the people in power and the people in charge and the people who are entrusted with protecting us and protecting the public good that have not done anything like what COVID managed to do? Yes, I mean, if you look at SARS and, the, or you know, yeah. all, all of that, right? Like there was containment that could have happened. There were safety measures that could have been taken. There was care that could have been taken early on that would have prevented the level of destruction that we've all lived through over the last two years. And um, I think there's an analog there. Um, I'm so glad you guys made the... Um the piece about the healthcare workers, because I'm I'm really curious about what sort of documentation is going to be made over these past two years, because kind of because it's been so drawn out, um, you know, I, I, 
I'm not at a place right now in my life where I keep a journal consistently or like, Mm -hmm. you know, people have their Instagram, but like what is going to be preserved about people's everyday experiences of what this was like over such a long period of time. So things like that, I think are going to be really important in the future, especially healthcare workers, because we don't, we don't know what it's been like in those hospitals. No, we don't. We don't. And, you know, I mean, a lot of it hasn't been reported on, particularly when we made the line in May 2020, it was not being reported on at all because, you know, and and there are, you know, some good reasons for that. There are HIPAA laws, there are privacy laws um, that are protective, but it also really insulated a lot of the public from knowing what was going on and created a space in which conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. and, you know, falsities could fester and denial could fester. Um, and we were, because of the nature of our documentary theater work, we were able to interview healthcare workers anonymously and change their names and camouflage the identities of the hospitals that they worked at so that Mm. the truth about what was happening could get out safely in a wider way, um, that still protected patients' privacy. And, um, and, you know, the stories we heard were pretty mind blowing. And um, I do see that piece in particular because it was made in such a rapid response way also as a piece of living history. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're all still processing and probably nobody wants to see a play about COVID right now. um, And that's totally fine. They will. But I do hope in, yeah, at some point as we have enough distance to look back that, that that play will become part of the historical record and that the voices of the frontline healthcare workers from New York City who were truly heroic will become part of the historical record. No, and I'm I'm curious about their experiences now, you know, after they had to go through the second and third waves and I'm that's so interesting that you did it so quickly right at the beginning, but after they were tapped out for a year and a half, like those are also just completely different experiences and feelings, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, I want to ask you about being an artist parent and how you and Eric have <laughs> kind of balanced your roles as parents and artists, especially since you work together so much of the time. Um, how did you guys, did you always know that you wanted to be parents or how have you kind of juggled that part of your relationship? Yeah, that's a great set of questions. Um, <laughs> so a lot so of them, sorry. we met when I was, I had just moved to New York, like mm-hmm. just out, like of, out college. of college. Yeah. I had come here to go to acting school. I was like not looking for my husband, right? <laughs> I had like broke up with my boyfriend to move here. And I was like, woohoo, I'm in New York, right? <laughs> um, I'm focusing on my art. Um, and of course, promptly, like within six months, met Eric and and it was it was fairly undeniable from the beginning. Um, like I said, we got the idea for the exonerated a month after we started dating. We started working on that project together immediately, and it was immediately clear that not only were we 
comp- compatible as life partners that but that we were compatible creative partners and that we had work to do together right so there was like no marriage proposal really or anything like that it was like oh we're getting married right we've got stuff to do like let's <laughs> just get all of that drama out of the way and just get down to business we're busy right? yeah yeah and like commit to each other because we clearly have things that we're supposed to do together um and so that's always been we've always been creative partners like since we've been a couple um it's woven into the fabric of our relationship and we both always knew that we wanted a kid. Um, but I also, like I said, like I wasn't even looking for my husband when I met him. So I was like, I'm definitely not looking to be a mom yet. Right. So just so, and he's a few years older than me. So I was like, just so you know, like that's going to happen, but like not for a while. Right. <laughs> so um, we were together for nine years before we had a kid. Um, so I will say though, that nine years of making art together, I think really prepared us to parent together. I think for a lot of couples, it's a big shock when you have a kid because all of a sudden you're not just a couple having a relationship, but your partners doing like raising a child, right? Which involves a lot of creative problem solving. (laughs) It involves a lot of work, a lot of, you know, questions about division of labor, right? That like you don't necessarily have to deal with as an ordinary couple just being in a relationship with each other, right? Um, Or if you do, it's about like who's buying the groceries and who's doing the dishes, right? Which are lower stakes than when there's a human being involved. And obviously when you have a kid, there's a human being involved, right? So everything gets more intense, more immediate, deeper, more important. And also it's the same principles that we had already been working with through nine years of making work together, right? Like we had already learned how to collaborate effectively towards a common goal that was really, really important to both of us, right? And how to deal with division of labor and how to play our strengths and what principles we believed in, in terms of trying to make something real in the world. And like parent, parenting is creative work also, right? And so it, in a certain way, it wasn't a giant adjustment to us to go from being a couple without a kid to being a couple with a kid because we're like, oh, it's, it's kind of all part of the same thing. Um, I mean, I feel really blessed and lucky that, you know, neither one of us has a nine to five, neither one of us has a, has, you know, so we have, we work really hard. Um, we work more than 40 hours a week, but there are also a lot of aspects of our schedule that we're very much in charge of. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think in terms of parenting, that has made things both more complicated and a lot easier, right? It's like I can, I have a producer brain, right? So I can produce our life, right? I can figure out or like first AD or stage manage our life, right? Like I I can figure out what the schedule needs to be with childcare and how we juggle that with all of our projects. And I see that work as creative and I like doing it. I like solving those kinds of problems. Um, 
And, you know, Sadie has been, she's 12 now, and she has been part of our projects from the beginning. You know, she's mm-hmm. been, she was on set with us when we made a movie. She's in the rehearsal room with us often, right? Or like there's a babysitter around when she was little and couldn't be quiet right. in a rehearsal room. But like, <laughs> you know, she's she's grown up with artist parents and she's an artist herself. So we've sort of woven the fabric of all of it together. And I also should say, I don't think I ever would have had a child with somebody who wasn't committed to 50-50 division of labor, right? So I also feel lucky in right. that sense that, you know, both in terms of our work life and in terms of our life life, we've been able to be as egalitarian in our division of labor parenting as we are in our creative work. And so it's, you know, it's all hands on deck all the time. I love it. So inspiring to me. <laughs> My daughter's only three and a half right now, but we're going to, we're going to make it. Um, do you ever feel like you two need to fight for that equal division of labor from outside forces, like uh, people that you're working with, schools, people who might try to look at you as a pair and be like, well, the mom's going to take on more of the childcare. Let me lean. I don't know. I'm not articulating this question well. You know, has has, the, pa- has the patriarchy ever tried to unbalance your, your vibe? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think there are multiple questions here like that, or that's answerable on more than one level, right? Because there are systemic factors where for sure, absolutely, that's true. And on a more individual level, like anybody who collaborates with us or works with us in any direct way for any period of time knows that I run shit. So, (laughs) and it's kind of unarguable in terms of like the practicalities and the logistics and all of that. Creatively speaking, Eric and I are absolutely equal partners in terms of workload, in terms of creative decisions, right? Like that's all totally equal. But in terms of like how the thing runs, right? Like I run it. (laughs) So, you know, and if you're around us for any amount of time, that's immediately clear. So in terms of our immediate collaborators, no. Um, But in terms of how the systems that we operate in work, absolutely. I mean, so like one of the things that has always been really important to me is it's, it's always been very clear, especially when Sadie was littler, that, you know, childcare is necessary, right? For working parents, right? If it, especially, I mean, in any situation, but definitely in the arts, right? And, you know, there's been all kinds of work done on like what happens to women directors when they have kids and the, you know, the burden of childcare is put on them and, uh, you know, disproportionately. And there are, you know, lots of people have looked at like how women directors, women playwrights often like fall off the radar for several years, right? And, and part of that is because there's a childcare gap, right? Because it's particularly in theater, we're not automatic or independent film for sure. We're not automatically paid enough to cover the number exactly. of hours of childcare that are needed to run a set or to run a rehearsal room. And so one of the things that I just have done as a matter of habit from the beginning is whenever we get a contract for a job, I ask for a childcare stipend. And sometimes you know, people don't always say yes to that, right? Sometimes we get a no, but often we've gotten a yes, right? And it might not be the whole thing, right? But it might, but it's something. And even if the answer is no, I see that as a contribution towards normalizing 
Like this is something that yeah. we have to think about, right? That's like great. kids don't just not exist. <laughs> like somebody mm-hmm. needs to take care of them before their school age while parents are working. And I think, you know, that's something that our industry needs to deal with as a whole. And so the more I can do as an individual to sort of normalize that and be like, that's not me being high maintenance or difficult. It's just like, this is a factor. Can we talk about it? Then I, I, and I think the more of us do that, the more that paves the way, right. For, for that to become a normalized thing. I wanted to learn more about your class at Juilliard because that was how we had gotten in touch over Instagram when you were posting about it. Um, how long have you been teaching it? And can you tell me a little bit about sure how did, have you had you taught it elsewhere? Or is this a class you designed for Juilliard? Um, yes and no. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's about storytelling structure, correct? Yeah. So I t- at Juilliard, I teach a class called Story to the MFA drama division students um, that is now, it started as a semester, now it's two semesters. It's a year long um, part of the curriculum. And I teach the graduate actors story structure um, as it applies to theater, film, television. I mean, story structure is story structure, right? And there are differences uh, uh, in terms of how it applies to different mediums, but it also, it's the same set of basic principles underlying all of it, right? And that's now backed up by neuroscience, which I should go, <laughs> could go off on a whole nerdy riff about because it's kind of some of my favorite stuff to talk about. Um, so I teach them story structure, and then they're all working on an individual project in the class, right? And they and and I take them from an idea, right? Whether that's an idea for a film or a play or a solo show, um, all the way through to by the end of the second semester of the class, they have a draft that's in solid shape. Um, and so we go through the whole story building process. And most of my students have most of them are already expert at story because they're graduate acting students at Juilliard, right? And so they've been dealing with story as actors for an, a long period of time, but most of them are new to writing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're new to working with story from that perspective. Um, time is weird, so I'm not actually sure how long I've been there. <laughs> um, I want four years, I think. I want to say that's right. I want to say this is my fourth year. Um, But the pandemic sort of warped all of that a little bit. Uh, It's possible that it's five, but I think it's four. Um, And so when I say yes and no, I've I've only taught this course in an academic structure in a graduate drama department at Juilliard. I haven't taught it in other acting programs um, or on a semester structure. Um, but I have a thriving coaching practice, um, one-on-one also, and I work with all sorts. I teach this, you know, similar overlapping material to my private writing clients who are at all stages. Some of the, I do have like, you know, some actor turned writers that I work Mm -hmm. with. That's a little niche that I'm in, but I also have, you know, I work with showrunners. I work with, you know, people who are working film screen screenwriters, working off-Broadway playwrights. Do you um, enjoy doing that coaching work? I love it. I love it. It. Ju- it just sounds like it draws on all your strengths from everything that you've mentioned about <laughs> being that producer brain and that kind of overarching view. 
get to use yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it, it works that part of my brain for sure. And then also, you know, as a writer, I've I have written in individually in a solo mm-hmm. way, right? I published three novels and I, but I am not by nature like a solitary alone at the right. computer kind of writer at all. I am a collaborative artist and I and I'm the vast majority of my writing is done with a partner. Right. right. And I also write for television. So sometimes I'm working with a partner, a writing partner and a showrunner, right? Mm-hmm. Who's also a writer. Um, and so, you know, television writing is a collaborative form. And so I I love generating story with people. So as a coach, I get to do that too. And it's wonderful because the stakes are lower for me than they are when it's my <laughs> own work in the sense that like, I don't have to get attached to anything. I can give my clients a whole bunch of ideas and then they get to use the ones that they're, that they respond to, right. That feel aligned with what they're doing, which is great. And I don't need to like hash out what thing we're going to decide to do the way I do when I'm working (laughs) with Eric. Right. It's like, okay, we'll take what works. Right. Um, but I get to be in that generative process with all of my clients. And then, you know, there's also a big, like, you know, like we started out talking about, I am really, I, I love talking about creative process and I love figuring out how to work through blocks. And to me, you know, my creative process is my spiritual practice mm-hmm. and it has always been that way. Um, it's my personal evolutionary growth practice. It's right. And so, and I think the creative process is an incredible vehicle for all of that work. And so the principles that I've learned over the years in my own creative process and dealing with myself I, I also am a person who likes to, as you can probably tell, like articulate things, right? And like describe <laughs> complex systems, right? That's part of the writer part of my brain also. Uh-huh. Um, and so to be able to articulate some of those principles and help shepherd other people's creative processes and show them that like writer's block is not a real thing, right? It's actually, this is the phenomenon that's happening to you when you think you have writer's block and it's not actually so mysterious and it's not actually so difficult to overcome and no, there's nothing wrong with you as a writer. No, you're not lazy. No, you're not stuck, (laughs) right? Like let's unstick you. Here's 18 things we can do to do that, right? Like getting into that with my students and with my clients is really, really satisfying to me. So, um, yeah, so privately outside of Juilliard, I work one-on-one with writers, and I also have a comprehensive online course called Character-Based Story Structure that is a distillation of my complete story methodology that um, I open up for enrollment a couple of times a year, um, and that's a self-guided thing. And then, you know, I've been experimenting with some combinations of both, right, like some masterminds where we work through the online course together and I'm giving people guidance and they have a Mm. cohort of writers that they're working with, but it's, you know, it's, it's more of a group setting than the one-on-one kind of work. Um, but less formalized and academic than the year long thing that I do at Juilliard. Right. How did you, during the pandemic, how did you, uh, continue to feel a sense of community? Because it just sounds like you're someone who relies on that so much. How did you deal with the isolation or were you doing okay with your your family? I mean, well, I will say <laughs> that that was the hardest part of the pandemic for me. I mean, I really am. I'm an extrovert. My creative process is collaborative. Um, it's really important to me to be collaborating with people like all the time. Um, and so to not be able 
to gather in a room with people to do that for two years was really difficult. I mean, that that was the hardest part of the pandemic for me personally. Um, I kept it alive however I could. I mean, I do feel really blessed that my writing partner is also a member of my household. So Eric and I buckled down and did a lot more sort of of that solitary writer writer stuff together than we you know normally it's interspersed with acting jobs and with the workshop of a play or a production or you right. know um pre-production for a movie or whatever right so we go back and forth between like okay we're sitting down and doing script work or we're in a room with people making a project happen so we sat down and did a lot of script work we finished three scripts during the pandemic three maybe four um, we did the audio version of, uh, coal country. We did the street, we put up the streaming version of the line. Um, but we also just wrote some scripts. We wrote two pilots and a, finished a screenplay, um, and wrote, and wrote the line. Um, so, you know, I kept that collaborative ball in the air with Eric, the two of us together. Right. And then, you know, like everybody, I went online with everything that I could go online with. Right. So I continued to coach. I continued to teach. I actually used the opportunity at the beginning of the pandemic to do some sort of impromptu live Zoom classes that I might not have had space to do otherwise. But that was fun. I got to experiment with teaching online to groups of people in a way that I hadn't before. Um, and found some cool things to work with to bring into, you know, post-pandemic life, you know. So, you know, I kept it going where I could. And also, I'm just so happy to be able to be <laughs> in a room with people making art again, breathing the same air. It's yeah. really, really nice. Good. If, if you are in a space where you're feeling like really stuck um, are there any tangible things that you reach for again and again, like a book that you reread or music you listen to or things like that that can kind of inspire you or get you out of it? There aren't really external things that I go back to. There are stuff that I recommend, right? Like I talk about the Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, I find mm -hmm. really useful. And I quote from it a lot when I'm teaching, when I'm working with clients. Um I go back to the principles that I've learned over the years and that I teach people, right? Which is keep making, lean into the yes. If you're stuck somewhere, turn your attention to something else, right? Like we always have five projects going at any given time, right? So if I get stuck on one, unless I'm on a deadline and I'm forced to push through, we'll just work on another one. Right. And that loosens stuff up right. so that then we can circle back to the thing that wasn't working before and hit it from a different perspective. Right. So it's like key, it's it's like about staying agile and staying dynamic and looking for the thing that like even if nothing seems to be working, there's some little tiny glimmer of something that is and just going in there. Right. And following that out. And if you do that, it will change the ecosystem around it. It will make things move enough that it unsticks things. Right. So that's, you know, that's what I do. I also dance. Um, mm. So I think, and that's something that is, I think, especially like for writers, it's really good like to remember, <laughs> like you have a body and like, if you move your body, it moves things, it shakes things up. It will, 
you know, rearrange your cells so that you're looking at things when you're done moving, you're looking at things differently, right? Eric plays music. Um, I dance. <laughs> if he, he if he gets stuck, he'll pick up his mandolin or he'll pick up a guitar and it'll rearrange the molecules for him in a similar way. And then is there anything that you've taken in recently that you want to recommend? Any work of art, another play, a TV show? Mm. Whatever it is. I don't know. I mean, I recently is hard. Um <laughs> So yeah, you've had a particularly busy couple of months. I have had a particularly busy couple of months and I've been really immersed in the rehearsal process for whole country. So I was, um, yeah, I go back to, in terms of just like things that I go back to over and over, I go back to the wire over and over and Mm. over. I think it is, I mean, it is an absolute masterwork. I'm very lucky to be collaborating with two of the, with, two of the people who are at the helm of that show now. And we are so grateful to be sitting at on two separate projects to be sitting at their feet. Um, That, that show should have won the Nobel prize for literature, Hmm. the way that it deals with story structure. I mean, I could watch it over and over and over again and learn so much about directing and acting and storytelling and, and, um, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on. <laughs> so, you know, when when somebody asked me, like, what's the thing that you go back to over and over? It is not recent anymore, but it is a masterwork. Um, and I think any, every storyteller should watch it more than once. Well, thank you so much, Jessica. This was such a delight. Thank you for having me. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to the compass podcast if you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of the compass please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the compass podcast pledges start at as little as one dollar a month and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated also if you have a moment please review and follow in itunes every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast i'd like to thank the following people for their generosity The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brendan Spieth, audio assistance from Monik Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.